0: Great. That's what we're looking at over these uh, next few weeks. It's a word that I suppose we feel fairly familiar with as Christians. Uh, we use it a lot, we hear it a lot, we sing it a lot as well. But I often wonder if we really do comprehend what the Bible means by grace. And I wonder if it's grace that actually shapes us as Christians. Now, the word grace... You'll get used today in uh, everyday speech. Look up the Oxford Dictionary. It tells you there's 14 different definitions of the word grace and you're probably familiar with some of them. Uh, grace, we'll have that as a girl's name today. Uh, it's something that you say before a meal. Uh, we talk about grace in terms of poise or elegance, that someone's very graceful. Um, sometimes if you're late with a payment, they'll talk about there being a period of grace. That's getting closer to what the Bible means. But when the Bible uses the word grace, this is going to be my definition. This is what we're going to work with. God's unmerited and undeserved favour. That's what grace means. God's unmerited and undeserved favour. It means God's kindness to us when he owed us nothing. And more than that, it's God's kindness to us When what we actually deserved from God was his judgment and his punishment. See, grace is the key ingredient in us becoming Christians. In fact, grace I think would I'd say was the most important doctrine in the whole of the Christian faith. Now, there was a, a story about C.S. Lewis, the great English writer, who attended a, a conference on different world religions, and they were trying to figure out what identified Christianity as being different from all of the other religions of the world. And people were suggesting perhaps it's the idea of resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead. Maybe that's what marked it out, but then there were other religions that had similar ideas. C.S. Lewis walked into the room in the middle of the discussion, and they said, we're talking about what it is that makes... Christianity different from all other religions. And see, as Lewis said, it's simple. It's great. That's the thing that makes Christianity stand out from every other religion in the world. See, every other religion in our world is working on some kind of merit-based reward. There's something that you need to do to attain the goal of whatever religion it is that you're talking about. It will be your effort that will achieve forgiveness, or paradise, or nirvana, or enlightenment, whatever the goal is of that religion. It may be the five pillars of the Muslim faith. It may be the eightfold path of Buddhism. It could be the commitment to the law within Judaism. It could be the good works that will bring about good karma within Hinduism. It could be chicken sacrifices. It could be hanging up the bathhouse so the tag doesn't show. It doesn't matter what religion you look at. They all sing with the one voice. They all say... It's up to you, that you will need to put in the effort, that you will need to put in the work. To attain the goal of that religion, it will be your work that will do it. Merit-based thinking. But the message of Christianity stands in complete contrast to all of that. See, the message of Christianity actually says, there's nothing that you can do to earn your forgiveness. There's nothing that you can do to make the creator of the universe favourably disposed towards you. Salvation is offered to us because God's gracious. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It will never be yours by right. And that's what we're looking at over these next few weeks. What grace actually means. And and we're looking at three different parables. We're going to start with with Matthew chapter twenty. I think the Bible says that we should be gripped by God's grace. We should understand that it should be the thing that shapes our lives as Christians, shapes the way that we live, and it should be the thing that motivates us. But before we look at that parable in Matthew chapter 20, we need to actually understand our state, our situation, without God's intervention. Intervention. When you go and see a doctor, you want to get a clear diagnosis. You want to know exactly where you stand. You want to know what the issues are so that you can take the right course of action. Well, the Bible gives us a very clear diagnosis. It doesn't make for a very pretty reading, but the Bible tells us clearly what our situation is. Let me take you through a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2 where the writer Paul is wanting to talk about our situation. This is what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. You don't need to be a medical person to know that if that's the diagnosis, the prognosis isn't very good, Okay, Uh, There's not much hope for you from that situation. Even the non-medical amongst us realise that. That's the state that we're in without God's intervention. Now, did you notice that it doesn't say you were doing poorly in your transgressions and sins? Or you were struggling in your transgressions and sins? No, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. And it doesn't actually end there. The situation even gets a little bit worse. Not only were we dead, but he goes on to say this, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were dead and we actually deserved to be punished by God because of our sinfulness, because of our rejection of God, because of our transgressions and sins. Our diagnosis? Dead because of our sins, deserving of God's punishment. Now, it's when you realise the seriousness of that situation that you can begin to grasp the magnitude of God's grace. See, it's when we are dead, it's when we have nothing to offer, it's when we have no hope of helping ourselves, it's when we realise that we're deserving of God's punishment we see that God stepped in and shows us his grace in Jesus. This is what Paul goes on to say. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So do you see the, see the picture here? What is it that makes it possible for us to be saved? Is it your hard work? No, it's God's grace. What was God willing to do for us because of his grace? He was willing to make us alive in Christ. We were dead, yet God was willing to make us alive through Jesus. That's grace. Unmerited. Undeserved. We struggle with grace, we struggle with the idea because we live in a world where we know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. See, that just sounds a little bit too easy, doesn't it? I mean, surely there's got to be a catch. Isn't there something that we've got to do? That's the way that our minds work. Because when you see the ads on TV and it says free air conditioning with our car, you know that it's not free. You're paying for it somewhere. And we start to think the same about grace. There's really nowhere in our world where we, are, oh, where we genuinely experience grace. The pay packet that you get, the mark that you get for your university course, the promotion that you get at work, the award for your citizenship, they all come about because of what you've done. You've earned it. You've deserved it. But again, merit's the currency of our world, but grace is the currency that God works in. God shows us his grace when we don't (laughs) deserve it, when you can't earn it. Unmerited, undeserved favour from God. Now, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 20, but whenever you look at the parables of Jesus, you've always got to look at what has led to this. See, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus launches straight into telling a parable and you're kind of wondering why. Well, have a look at the end of Matthew chapter 19. There's a setting... There's a context here for Jesus in in the telling of this parable. It's the story of the rich young ruler. He's come to Jesus with a question and look at what it says. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Did you wish a bit of merit-based thinking in that question? What's the good thing that I would need to do? To find favour with God. What would the, what have I got to do to, to get God to accept me? It's merit-based thinking that he's working on. Now Jesus does a clever thing. He actually runs this man through the Ten Commandments. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not for a moment saying the Ten Commandments, that'll be the thing, that'll be the trick. If you do that, then God will surely accept you. Now I think he's wanting to show the crowd and show this man where he's thinking is coming from. I think he wants to expose to everyone just where this guy is at. And the rich young ruler is reasonably confident about his law-keeping ability. If it comes down to keeping the law, well, he says, I've done all of that since I was a child. He's feeling pretty good about his situation. If that's the basis of finding favour with God, well, he feels like he may have actually done enough. But Jesus tells him that he needs to give up all of those things that he finds his security and his significance in. Give up his money, sell everything that he has and then come and follow me, Jesus says. And the passage actually says that the man walks away sad because he's very wealthy. He's not willing to give up all of those things. But then Jesus says this to his disciples. I tell you the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples are pretty flawed by this. If fine, upstanding, law-abiding, rich people can't get into heaven, then who in the world can't get into heaven? That whole camel in the eye of the needle. Have you ever tried to uh, thread a camel through a needle? You you really have to lick that tail quite a few times, wouldn't you, to get that in there? But Jesus says it's impossible. That's what he actually goes on to say. See, when the disciples heard that, they're stunned. They're saying, come on. I mean, if good law-abiding rich people can't get into the kingdom, what hope is there for anybody? But look at what Jesus says. This is the most important verse we need to understand before we can go and look at our next parable. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is very difficult. Oh, hang on. it doesn't say that. With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now what's impossible? Well, entry into eternal life. Friendship with God. It's impossible from our end. That's what Jesus is saying, isn't he? You're not going to achieve it by what you do. Now, I need you to look at the next verse. Look at what Peter says. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Did you smell that when it went past? I mean, that's a lot of merit-based thinking in that question, isn't it? Isn't he saying to Jesus, Hang on, we've done a real lot for you, Jesus. Won't there be something for that? What about a little something for the effort there, Jesus. Isn't that what Peter's saying? And now Jesus is very gentle with Peter, but he goes on to tell this parable. He goes on to tell this parable. It's a simple story, isn't it? Starting there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 20. There's a guy who owns a farm. He needs labourers to work on the farm, so he goes down to the marketplace, which is where you'd pick up your labourers, picks up a bunch of labourers, six o'clock in the morning, they start work. That's the normal starting time. We're talking about a 12-hour day that they'd be working here. He agrees to pay them $200, day's wages, for their work on the farm. Nine o'clock he needs some more, so he heads back down, picks up a few more guys and says, I'll pay you whatever's fair. Twelve o'clock he goes down and picks up more. Three o'clock he goes down and picks up more. Five o'clock, one hour before knock-off time, he heads back down to the marketplace and picks up more labourers to just do one hour of work on the farm. And when it comes to paying these men, he says to the paymaster, do it in the reverse order. Get the guys who were here last and pay them first. So the guy who's only worked for one hour heads up, picks up his pay packet, has a look inside, see, $200 in there. He's only been there for an hour. He's picking up $200. So he walks away very pleased. The guy who got there at 3 o'clock, he gets $200. The guy who got there midday, $200. The guys who got there at 6 o'clock in the morning, they're rubbing their hands. They're thinking this is going to be some big payday for us if all these guys are getting a full day's wages. They go to pick up their pay packet. There's $200 in there. And they start grumbling. They go to the boss and say, how come the guy who only works for one hour gets exactly the same as me? And did you see what the boss says to him? He says, hey, hang on, you agreed to work for a day's wages. I've given you a day's wages. Or are you telling me that I can't do whatever I want with my own money? Is that what you're saying? Or maybe you're just jealous because I'm actually being generous? Is that what it is? Now, let's be clear about this. This is not a parable about industrial relations. <laughs> this is not the Liberal Party's new Work Choices Program, okay? This is not a parable about how to treat your employees either. It's a parable about God's extraordinary grace to us. It's a parable about God's undeserved generosity. In case you hadn't figured it out, God's the master in the parable. He's the one who employs all of these people at different times and he's the one who is incredibly generous in what he gives to them. It's not a parable about getting what you deserve. It's a parable about getting something that you don't deserve. That's grace. Unmerited, undeserved favour. There are those who want to argue with the boss. They want to say, hang on, that's not fair. Bingo, of course it's not fair. Grace isn't about being fair. Grace is actually about getting what you don't deserve from God. My guess is if we took a quick straw poll here, most people here would think the boss was being a bit unfair. Although there were a couple of people at Bible study during the week who thought that it was fair. But in a sense it's not fair what this man is doing. Grace, God's grace to us isn't about being fair. If God was fair with us, if God gave us what we deserved, then we'd be dead and punished, wouldn't we? Because remember, that's what we deserve from God. Now, it's not just this parable where Jesus gives this idea. This is the idea that comes all the way through the Bible. We're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son next week. The older brother thinks it's totally unfair that his younger brother should be welcomed back. And he's right, his younger brother's blown the inheritance. Why should he think that he can walk back in here as a family member? But the father's not wanting to be fair, the father's wanting to be gracious. If your home is anything like mine, then there's one thing that regularly gets lost. and That's the nail clippers. I don't know, is that, is, maybe it's just because they're such small things, but they always seem to disappear, don't they? You know, they're off in some magical place somewhere. But it's always easy to tell when the nail clippers have disappeared at our place. We have boys who end up with ridiculously long and ridiculously dirty nails. And you say, can you please clip those? I don't know where the nail clippers are. I can't find them. So there's always a telltale sign that the nail clippers have gone missing. You can see it in the household. I think the same is true with the doctrine of grace. When God's grace disappears from a church, and sadly it can disappear, there'll be telltale signs that you can't see grace anymore. Let me tell you what a couple of those telltale signs are. One of the telltale signs that the church has forgotten the idea of God's grace is that legalism will creep in to replace it. You may have seen that in churches. Uh, you even see it in the books of the Bible. Galatians is the place where legalism creeps back into the church. God's grace gets replaced by law. People start to think that the reason that God accepts them it's because they're good law-abiding people, that that's what makes them right with God. The legalists will work ever harder at making new laws and new rules to obey and they'll begin to insist that everybody else obey these laws and these rules as well. If it's not legalism that creeps in, another thing that can tend to creep into churches is spiritual pride or maybe better, spiritual arrogance spiritual pride, and it starts to think that God's accepted me because really I am quite an acceptable person. I mean, God would be lucky to have me as part of his group. It's the kind of arrogance that you often see in Christians and you can see it when they start thinking that they're better than other people or they start looking down on other people. If you understand God's grace, then you know that you've got nothing to be proud of other than what God has done for you in Jesus. The only thing that you contributed to your salvation was that you desperately needed to be saved. God's the one who's done everything else. So it's very hard to get arrogant if you really understand grace. There's one last thing, and I think this is probably a little more rare, but one more thing that can creep into the church if grace gets lost, and that's an ungodly freedom. People can say, well, I wasn't saved by what I did, so it doesn't matter now what I do. I think if you lose sight of God's grace, then you can sometimes think it doesn't matter how you live. But we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time that it does matter how we live. And if we truly understand God's grace, then there'll only be one way for us to live. We will want to be faithful in our relationship with God. I'm a bit of a sports fan. I I can watch pretty much any sport, any time. But sometimes there are stories that, that... truly do amaze me in sport, Uh, and this was one of them. This guy in the centre here, his name is Danny Manning. He played for uh, the Suns, Phoenix Suns, in the United States, basketball player, quite obviously. When he was contracted to play for the Phoenix Suns, he was earning $1 million a year. Now, halfway through the season... He had a knee injury, which meant that he would be sidelined for the rest of the season, but he would still get the entire $1 million, even though he didn't play half of the games in the season. But it gets closer than that. While he was injured, the Phoenix Suns knew this guy was good. So they went to him with a contract, literally in his hospital bed, and said, we want you to sign a six-year contract with us We will give you $40 million over the next six years. Now, at this stage, they didn't even know if he would ever step back onto a basketball court. But they were willing to gamble. They were willing to get him to sign this contract so that even if he never played another game, he would still get more than $6 million a year, every year, for the next six years. And it gets even a little bit crazier than that. There were incentive clauses in the contract. If he could get the Phoenix Suns to the playoffs or to the finals or win a championship, he would be given millions more on top of that. I mean, that just seems to me to be outrageous. But let me show you something even more outrageous. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. For a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, God's grace to us in Jesus, it's even more outrageous than Danny Manning's salary package, isn't it? I mean, the Phoenix Suns, well, for them it was an investment or a gamble. They were hoping to get something back out of that. But God has shown us Incredible grace in his son Jesus. We deserved nothing. We were owed nothing. It's not as if God could see your potential. It's not as if God's somehow going to be more powerful with you on his side. Simply grace. That's what it is that brings us into a relationship with God. Our contribution to our salvation, we desperately needed to be saved. God's contribution with the rest through his son Jesus and through his great grace. How about we pray?